you want to do the prayer, Adam? So, okay. All right. I'll do the prayer. Fine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, we beg you, O Lord, our actions by your holy inspirations, and carry them on by your gracious assistance, that every prayer and work of ours may begin always with you, and through you be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, is that is that a prayer you, you made up? Oh, no, 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 no. That's the traditional prayer but at the start of every session of an ecumenical council oh, well, for similar situations. Well, that's, it's that sounded really good. In the Roman yeah. <laughs> I was like, where did you come up with that? So is that off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, it's part of the Roman liturgy, and that's the old translation. Greetings and welcome to this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, the official podcast for the website Where Peter Is. My name is Mike Lewis, and today I am joined by two of our regular contributors to Where Peter Is, Adam Rasmussen and David Lafferty. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hey, Mike. Nice to be here. It's been a while since we've recorded a podcast, and this is the first time that Adam and Dave have ever gotten together, seen each other's faces in this Zoom conversation. We've put together our two resident PhD contributors, so hopefully we will have a fascinating podcast. My PhD has nothing to do with religion, unfortunately. That's the only... But it is about conspiracy theories, and that's... Yeah, it does involve that a little bit. (laughs) And that's what we have you here for. Before we begin this episode of Peter's Field Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is, and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running where Peter is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you. The first topic I wanted to talk about was Adam's recent piece. In response to what happened in the Archdiocese of Detroit, following the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the CDF's document on the validity of baptism, Essentially, the the congregation decided or or declared that baptisms that use the form, I baptize you in the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sanctifier are not valid, according to the Catholic Church, nor are baptisms that, rather than saying, I baptize you in their form, say, we baptize you. This created a a bit of a buzz in Catholic social media. Turns out that a young priest from the Archdiocese of Detroit, Father Hood, was taking a look at his old home videos uh, and watched his own baptism where the deacon used that form. 
And of course, in Catholic teaching, baptism is the gateway sacrament, so to speak. Until you receive baptism, you can't validly receive any of the other sacraments. So therefore, that meant that his confirmation was invalid, his ordination to the diaconate was invalid, and his ordination to the priesthood, uh, which also meant that whenever he had said Mass or granted absolution, that would have been invalid as well. Although Adam had some thoughts about that particular situation in pastoral terms. Well, the CDF document, strictly speaking, it only clarifies that the formula was invalid, and therefore someone baptized with that formula must be baptized again validly. And the reason for that is basically Augustinian theology, which is Catholic theology in this respect, that when anyone baptizes, regardless of the personal holiness or unholiness of the minister, which was the concern for Augustine, not really the concern here, it is Christ who baptizes. And he based that in part on the Bible, where John the Baptist says, he it is who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, Augustine is saying, when a minister baptizes you, it's actually Christ who baptizes you. And so to say we collectively baptize you is to stray away from that correct theology about it's Christ who baptizes. And interestingly, Thomas Aquinas even considered the baptismal formula we baptize, although he was imagining multiple ministers, not just one kind of speaking on behalf of other people, and said, no, you can't do that because of the same Augustinian principle. So that's what the CDF was clarifying. And that makes sense. From the point of view of Catholic theology, that makes sense. And that's the appropriate decision to take. The problem came about because people then are going to wonder, oh, wait, I don't know if I was baptized correctly. And maybe they want to check video like this priest did. And if you take that step to check video, which the vast majority of people can't even do because there is no video, and you find out you're baptized invalidly, then of course, you're going to have to be baptized again. And so since this priest did that, he really had no choice at that point. And so I wouldn't criticize them for that. But to publicize it created a bit of a scandal because then everybody was panicking. Maybe not everybody. Maybe it's only people on Twitter and no one's going to remember this 30 days from now. And I just feel like the ripple effect was really harmful because then everyone's like, oh, wait, now I'm worried that I'm not a real Christian. And that's just absurd. That's just ridiculous. So I was a bit concerned about that and wanted to explain theologically why you shouldn't be concerned. Yeah, and I think my own tendencies really started playing with that in my imagination. When I like to think about how things are interconnected and how they're related, and so this whole idea of apostolic succession being passed from one person to another, I've studied Sedevacantus and Orthodox and, and Anglican and and this whole idea of episcopae vagantes, or these rogue bishops who essentially collect random, what they consider uh, valid ordinations so that they can say that they're a real bishop. They find a rogue Orthodox bishop here. They find a rogue old Catholic bishop there. They find some Anglican who 
was baptized or who was ordained by by an old Catholic and a Lutheran from Sweden. And and so begins to look like a, a superpower, or I, I look at it more as a superpower than you, you use the word magic, but it's, oh, I, this bishop can power up this priest and then, or, and make a new bishop. And so that definitely the temptation is there. Now I was baptized in 1979, only still photos. I was baptized by a permanent deacon who, who is now deceased. Parents are deceased. Godparents are deceased. My one older sibling was 13 months old at the time. I start to wonder, like, maybe I should get conditionally baptized. I don't think there was an issue, but how do I really know? Dave, did you have a similar reaction? I don't know if you're as OCD about that kind of thing as I am. But I got to admit, I did, I did think back. I was baptized in uh, 1975, so there was no film of it, and uh, all I have is the, the baptismal certificate, and that's it. I got to say, I'm not particularly worried about it, partly because I started thinking about it and I, I started thinking, it's just, it seems, even though I understand it's a valid issue and it's something that like, this should be corrected if you know about it, it just felt wrong to be thinking this way, that it, it seemed bizarre to me that this priest could have, you know, gone through much of his life administering sacraments, but it turns out he wasn't actually a priest. It turns out he wasn't actually even a baptized Christian, and all the, the sacraments that he administered are invalid. It's, it's a terrifying scenario. That's what worried me the most. And it's, it, it just seems like there's potential here for people to undermine the validity of the sacraments in certain cases, whether by, I was thinking, like, it does this this formula, this we baptize you formula, do you, do you guys know anything about the, the history of it, like where it's been used, or is it like a more sort of progressive thing? I, I looked, I did a little research into it, and I saw that it's sometimes used by like Pentecostals and, and that sort of thing, but I, I don't know much about it. I don't personally know anything about it, but if I had to guess, we've talked about the, the translation of the Missal and the 1970 missile translation, which people consider to be progressive. One of the things was the creed, right? And it began with the words, we believe. And I remember when they were talking about, oh, we're going to change it to I believe, which matches the Latin, which is credo. I guess a lot of the, the people on the progressive side were trying to push how it's all about community, how it's all about communion. And so I guess the theology of the permanent deacon who did this baptism was that he was doing it on behalf of the church or representing the community. I can only yes. guess, given my knowledge of progressive theology and the types of things they think, that's the only, that, that's the only conclusion I can come to. That's, it's, to me too, it sounded like this could be a sort of like progressive 70s kind of thing. And I can, right away when I heard about this story, I just imagined the Taylor Marshalls of the world taking it and running with it and saying, oh, well, this was widespread in the, in the 70s and the 80s and in this area, you know, or in this particular diocese or whatever, and then trying to use that to undermine the status of particular Catholics, and especially more progressive Catholics or people who have maybe parishioners in a particularly like progressive part of the church or something like that. I could just see it becoming politicized. I could see it becoming, and, and I, he did a video on it that um, confirmed a little bit of what I was worrying about. So 
yeah, I don't know where this is going to go, but I, it could be weaponized. That's the, that's the terrifying idea. Well, and it's funny because one of the things that I tweeted, and I don't know if I, I, if somebody messaged it to me or if I think it popped into my own head, something to the effect of back in the olden days, the priest could mumble whatever he wanted in Latin and nobody would know the difference. <laughs> you know? And the funny thing was that set traditionalists on edge. They were like, no, there was no improvisation back then. But a lot of the older people on, on social media, including some who were altar boys at the time, were like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's that's yeah, the way it was. I remember father would do blah, 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 or we would just respond, whatever, in pig Latin. And not to say that's what typically happened. I'd be curious about what the formation was for permanent deacons back in the 70s and 80s. But Yeah, yeah. These are you know valid issues, and and I think it, it is important to to recognize that these things are they have real meaning and that they're they're crucial to look into. But yeah, we have to avoid that kind of first of all that sort of scrupulosity and doubt because again, we're it's it to me and this like Adam's article brought this out. It, it seems we're sort of imagining that God is confined to these formula that God can't do anything outside of this that God doesn't provide when things are missing. And it just contradicts my understanding of, of the faith when we get overly nitpicky about it. So I guess here, Adam, you've witnessed a little bit of discussion between two other Catholics who are struggling through this issue or playing it out in our minds. What prompted you to write this piece and what, were your, what was your thought process? Who were you trying to address when you wrote it? Oh, I can tell you exactly what prompted me. My wife prompted me. She said, you should write about this. You should get something out about this right away. And the reason was, as you both uh, suggested, to reassure regular Catholics, I didn't write it for other theologians, who had heard about this and were unsure what it meant and were worried. So it was pastoral in that sense. Because I knew immediately, theologically, the different responses that one would give. Most importantly, that God is not bound by the sacraments. Um, but I also talked about desire for the sacrament, God's universal salvific will, and I even suggested audaciously that ecclesia suplet could apply. And I realized, like, the Catholic theological tradition has multiple answers to this that are well accepted within the church and non-controversial except if you want to debate whether Ecclesia Suplet applies or not, which is controversial. So I wanted to basically try to share that knowledge so that people would understand that sacraments aren't magic. They're not magic incantations. When we talk about valid form and matter, that is not the same as magic. Although the way some people think about it is basically the same as magic. And so I wanted to try to explain the truth, basically, so that people could say, oh, okay, and then move on with their lives. I don't think anyone is totally immune to this doubt unless you just dismiss the very concept of validity from the get-go, which some people admittedly do. I myself have on multiple occasions now tried to remember how my youngest daughter was baptized because I feel like the deacon did say extraneous things I, I do think he said, I baptize you. I don't think he said, we baptize you. But I, I feel like he did throw in some stuff 
And since the parish was definitely known as a peace and justice parish, where they do change little things in the liturgy here and there, I start wondering about it. So no one's immune to this unless you just reject the whole concept. I'd like to bring up that issue that the Ecclesia Suplet, which is Latin for the church supplies. I brought up the issue on Twitter again. It's been a very active couple of weeks on Twitter for me, where I remember, and this isn't baptism necessarily, but at least on two specific occasions, I was at Mass and the priest, it was two different priests, two different parishes, but both were older priests. And in the first situation, the priest said, this is my blood twice. And in the second situation, he said, this is my body twice. And I think in the second situation, it was even weirder because like he, like it just lost his place. He was going on autopilot and took a wrong turn. And I think he realized something went wrong, but he didn't, he just kept going. I'm in the eighth row and I'm like, trying to, I'm grimacing. I'm like, he said the wrong thing. And I'm like looking around and I'm like, I don't know, maybe there was a deacon and I'm like giving the evil eye to the deacon. To, and, and it just, the mass continued. People went up to communion. And so a lot of the people who replied to my tweet used Ecclesia Suplet as the, they were like, don't worry about it. He, he, his intention was there. He made a natural mistake. It, the church supplies when there's the mistake going on. I don't think that a very strict Thomist would consider it valid. I don't know if you have a, a feeling about that. I, but it's just like one of those things where, and you wrote in your piece where it's only mentioned once in canon law or involved in one particular topic. And is it a broader theological category? I think one of the things that the church has turned towards, especially in the last century or 150 years, has been to pay more attention to intention, to God's mercy. One of the, one of the early things that, that comes to mind was around the 30s or 40s, Catholic funerals and burials started to be given to people who had died from suicide. And prior to that, obviously, it's grave matter to take your own life. But the terminology was basically like, it's a mortal sin. And if the last thing you do is a mortal sin, then you're going to hell. Now, obviously, we've put more emphasis on culpability. We understand mental health a lot better. We take into account our hope and God's hope for our salvation, we take into account whether that person was fully responsible for their actions, and we tend to veer more towards that merciful approach. And I think another issue that I've also brought up in relation to this is our view of the salvation of infants who die before baptism. It was universally understood in the church up until, I, I don't know, the 1800s and maybe even beyond that, that they go to limbo, which is a place that's not included in divine revelation, but it's not part of heaven, and therefore it's part of hell, but they don't actually suffer any pains, which, I mean, if hell is absence of God, I don't understand how that could not be painful. But that, I'm, anyway, so 
the in 2007 the church semi-officially turned from that theological theory so i'm thinking that the church has become a lot more generous in their approach theologically and a lot less rigorous am i going off on a tangent here adam or or, or does this speak to to what you're thinking I think they're all interconnected in that they're all particular applications of the broader point you made, which is that since the Second Vatican Council, and maybe even a little earlier, that didn't just come out of nowhere, out of nothing, the church has been less rigorous and more merciful, more compassionate to human weakness. So that suicide's a good example of that, talking about mental illness and reduced culpability. The church turned the corner on limbo before the International Theological Commission's document on limbo. It turned the corner when the Catechism of the Catholic Church was published, which has no mention of limbo in it, and explicitly says that the church entrusts unbaptized children who die to God's infinite mercy, which clearly implies that they don't go to hell or limbo. And it shows how well-educated you are, that you know that limbo is on the edge of hell because most people would define limbo as neither heaven nor hell. So you say, oh, I'm in limbo, like I'm between this and this. But actually, that's true. It's the lip of hell, or the vestibule, or whatever you want to call it. It's also made up. It's not real. I read my Dante cliff notes very well in high school. Go, exactly. (laughs) Dante, by the way, not a theologian. But he has been referenced at ecumenical councils. He has some sway. Do you think it's also part of the the long delayed lessons that the church learned from the Reformation? Maybe a greater emphasis on our individual relationship with God rather than it always being a sort of mediated uh, relationship, like mediated through through the church. I know that for Protestants, this kind of stuff, like this baptism issue, this is exactly the kind of thing that they think Catholics... Um, obsess over, and this is what's wrong with Catholicism, right? Because we're just so focused on the rules and not the actual sort of relationship with God, right? I think that traditionalists say that the Second Vatican Council Protestantized the church, which is not true, but it is to me clearly true that the Second Vatican Council was the very long delayed true and actual engagement with the issues that were raised at the Reformation. And the kind of superficial but actually important way that we see that most especially was the Mass was no longer in Latin and the cup was no longer denied to the laity, which were two of the biggest issues at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now, the doctrines of Trent were reconfirmed by Vatican II, of course, but they were put into a new context. They were put into a broader context that rescued them from the narrow-mindedness of polemical counter-Reformation theology and put them back into their scriptural context in that it's all about the biblical movement of the 20th century that leads to Vatican II. So that, yeah, there's this realization that what? Just because Protestants emphasize the significance of scripture doesn't mean we should downplay it and exaggerate the importance of tradition. Just because Protestants emphasize the individual's relationship with God doesn't mean we should downplay that relationship and emphasize the communal aspect. It was saying, actually, it's both and. And so Protestant doctrine in terms of sola scriptura, et cetera, was not at all accepted by Vatican II. Trent was accepted, but 
it was reconfigured. And so I think this greater emphasis on mercy is one part of that, which is why I say that Francis is just the embodiment of the implementation of Vatican II, which is still incomplete. And he has said that it's incomplete, Francis. So it's not that audacious for me to suggest it. Uh, Actually, JP2 said it as well. <laughs> JP2 said it was incomplete at the end of the century, the 20th century, and that we needed to examine our consciences to see how we could do better to implement it more. So it's actually not audacious at all. It's magisterial. That, that's something that really fascinates me, how the church is able to learn. Uh, yeah, traditionalists will look at Vatican II and see the Protestantization of the church, whereas um, I think the other way of looking at it is that over time the church learns and adapts ideas from outside it and incorporates them and transforms them in, into new ways that are no, no less Catholic. I read a little bit about Cardinal Jaeger, I think his name was, and, and Cardinal Bea, who were involved in ecumenical relations with uh, Protestants and, and brought that into the uh, Second Vatican Council. And I find that just so fascinating, that process where you have this authentic learning, not, a, not an infiltration of the church with these ideas from the outside, but a, a genuine reaching out and learning and understanding. And that's, I think that's one of the processes that goes on in the church that's often ignored or in some cases rejected by traditionalists because who think that the church already has all the answers to every question and there's nothing that the church can possibly learn. Yeah, to me, that's the fundamental orientation of Vatican II. That's the central thesis statement of Vatican II was to say, let's have a fruitful dialogue with the world because the church doesn't have all the answers. The church has made mistakes and the church can learn. And all of this is in the documents. I'm not talking about some nebulous spirit of Vatican II. I'm talking about the words of Vatican II. Yes, yes. Um, that is the fundamental orientation, which has been emphatically reaffirmed by every pope since then. And Francis is continuing that legacy with a real urgency, I think, to say, look, we've grown kind of slack, okay? And we have to move forward. This is the only future for Catholicism. There is no other version where the magisterium explodes and undoes the last 70 years. You know, this is it. And that's something that maybe that's what I find more than any other pope in my lifetime. He embodies that idea that the church has to listen and the church has to, to learn. Now, he, of course, he's, he doesn't mean that anything comes in. He, he, we saw that in the, the Amazon synod where you had lots and lots of ideas being tossed around. And in the end, it was a very sort of careful selection of some of these ideas and a careful incorporation with a lot of discernment. But I really, I find that process invigorating. And I think that's, the church needs more of that. But again, with that careful discernment, not just this kind of chaos of ideas flying around. Yeah. You've probably heard the model is look slash listen, discern, act. And that's how it goes. And that's the spiritual discernment that Francis and many other Catholic leaders practice. And so whenever people start talking about, oh, the church is compromised and capitulated to the world, I just tune that stuff out immediately because they're just describing what Vatican II was trying to do and what we've been doing since then. And so if they're not on board with that, they're just on a different plane altogether that I cannot engage with, basically. Before we move on to any other topics, I just want to reiterate, because some of our listeners may not have 
read your article. So you were talking about wanting to reassure Catholics. And one of the reasons why I, I think our discussions early on, because I didn't know where Adam was going to go with this, some kind of weird metaphysical, I don't know. I didn't know what Everybody to panic. <laughs> yeah, there's always a little bit of that. But I think we, were, we both wound up on the same page, mainly for one thing, I have some awareness of, even though I do have that scrupulosity about sacramental validity, it's just ingrained in me based on the things that I've learned, the things that I've studied, just it, it works together like a neat little puzzle for me. And so if this sacrament is invalid, that sets off this chain reaction, that kind of thing. But there was a part of me that was that is also aware. And when I first heard these things, they turned me off. Obviously in Catholicism, the validity of ordination is a very important issue. It's, it defines our debates with Anglicans and with ultra-traditionalists and that sort of thing. But it's very interesting that the tradition in the Catholic priestly ordination is if there's more than one bishop present. Like when my brother was ordained, I think there, there were several auxiliary bishops, there were two or three visiting bishops, but Cardinal Whirl was the presiding bishop. He was the ordinary. And then there are a bunch of priests there. Even though there are a bunch of other bishops there, only the ordaining bishop lays hands on the newly ordained priests. So uh, now there's a big part where the other priests go through a procession and they lay hands on the newly ordained, but the other bishops hands off. And if the church was ultra concerned with priestly ordinations being valid, if they didn't have a little bit of trust that this that it was going to work okay, then they would, you'd think that let's bring over the emeritus and have him put the hands on Deacon, Deacon Lewis here and make sure he really is a priest. And the other, the other thing that's interesting is the tradition in the Catholic church is that they're in Episcopal ordination or bishop consecration, whatever term you want to use. The right calls for one principal bishop and two co-consecrators. And so those co-consecrators, yes, they do put, they do lay hands on the bishop, on the newly ordained bishop. But it's interesting because the purpose, it's stressed that it's not so much to ensure the validity of the ordination, but to show the collegiality, to show that they're part of the, of the College of Bishops. But instinctively, I have this scrupulosity. But the tradition of the church is to trust and hope in God's grace and not to obsess over whether or not the rite was performed precisely because ultimately our trust is in God. Obviously, in this young priest's case, he knew for a fact. And if somebody digs up their old video and, and, and they find that it was invalid, yes, by all means, go get properly baptized, get that taken care of. But for the rest of us, we are not to have that kind of despair, that kind of doubt. And that's been consistent through the history of the church. Otherwise, I jokingly propose maybe they should have a booster shot of baptisms right before confirmation or you know the night before you're 
the night before your ordination or your wedding, just to make sure, but just in case the first one didn't take. But the church has never had that approach. The church has always been about one baptism. And the priest was mumbling in Latin or Greek or old church Slavonic and got the words wrong. God hopefully will provide. You're right that we trust in God's mercy and our trust is well-founded, certain indeed, because God has told us through divine revelation that he desires all people to be saved. And so the whole legalistic doubting mindset is alien to the thinking of the Catholic Church and alien to divine revelation and sound theology. So, of course, there's no reason to do any of those things. In fact, to do any of those things you just suggested, like baptismal booster shots, would be a contradiction and counter witness to what we believe. And the liturgy, of course, expresses our faith. So it would be a terrible thing to be doing things like that liturgically it would send a message to the people in the pews that we aren't sure about our own salvation, that we aren't sure that God is faithful. But scripture tells us that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. That's one of the main concepts of scripture, one of the main things God has told us about himself and proven to us through the incarnation of his beloved son. So we don't do any of that stuff. Theology at theologians who come up with these concepts like votum sacramenti, desire for the sacrament, or God's universal salvific will, or even ecclesia supla, all of these are just theological attempts to solve these sorts of intellectual dilemmas, okay? And so they're all just different ways of getting at the same point, if you will, which is why I didn't fear to put more than one in my explanation, even one that people might object to because they all go back to the bottom line, which is the point I just made about God's mercy. And so the liturgy and our rituals have to reflect that. Otherwise, they would inculcate the exactly wrong thing. And so if people are being catechized one way or another, either directly or indirectly, into this magical thinking, it's a real shame. And it's really tragic. So I was like hoping to play my part in getting people on the right track, basically. Just going to say, it eased my mind to say, you know, and, and I think that you articulated uh, in a way that I'm not able to because I don't have the, the theological uh, background. You articulated what I was basically feeling, I think, or what I was thinking and hoping was the, the church's sort of overall position. Yeah, I would also tell people to look into their own hearts, okay, to pray to God and reflect I was a little disturbed, though I understood what he meant, that this priest who had to be ordained again correctly, he said something like, I was surprised to find out that I'd never been a Christian. I'm paraphrasing him. I don't remember his exact words. I didn't care for the way that he phrased that. This isn't like an attack on him. I'm just trying to make a theological point. Of course he was a Christian. He was not a validly baptized Christian. But if he reflects on his spiritual life, I think that he will see that he was always a Christian. And he said, in fact, he said that in a way. He said, I was a follower of Jesus Christ. But that's the definition of a Christian. That's what the word Christian means. I don't say that to undermine baptism. We've already established that if you know that you're invalidly baptized, obviously you should get baptized correctly because Christ said to baptize all nations, etc. And clearly, I kind of, that kind of fell apart for then, honestly. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, 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 sometimes I can be really eloquent, and then other times, <laughs> well, and obviously, it's like 
I get confused. Obviously, there is some form of baptism of desire, right? I don't right. know. Theologically, it, it would seem that would definitely apply. If you, was, if you thought you were baptized, and if it ever popped into your head, or if it ever became revealed to you that you were not baptized, and in such a case, you would rush to get baptized immediately, yeah. I, I don't know that there's a better definition of baptism of desire than that. Right. So, I mean, the votum sacramenti means that the desire for the sacrament is enough to bestow God's grace precisely because God isn't bound by sacraments, okay? And so let's make an analogy here to annulments. Uh, most Catholics know that your children, if you get an annulment, are legitimate. They're not bastards in any sense of the word although that stereotype is out there in movies and stuff. So it's the same kind of principle. Just because you realized you weren't validly baptized for X years doesn't make you a bastard Christian, okay? That's what I was trying to get at. Because you acted in good faith. You did nothing wrong. Therefore, God would not punish you. So the grace of the Holy Spirit was always there. And if he was performing spiritual works of mercy throughout his life and had a relationship with Jesus Christ, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then it is evident that this is true. And we theologians have to explain it all. So we get to come up with cool terms like God's universal salvific will. And we get to say things like Deus sui sacramentis non aligatis est. Okay? God is not bound by his own sacraments. But that's our job as theologians. For the regular folks, I wish they would just understand reflectively, know thyself, that they are Christians and they do have the Holy Spirit. And therefore, there's nothing good to be gained from entertaining these doubts. These mental games, they don't come from the Holy Spirit. They must come from the other spirit. That's what I think. I want to bring up a mentality because I think, or I want to bring up uh, a subject because I think it feeds into a lot of the larger issues with uh, a lot of the people who criticize our site, criticize Pope Francis. And it's something I, I think you used the words in your essay about people who are damned on a technicality. And I find that this is not just this particular issue. But as you said before regarding limbo, I thank God we've never had a, a miscarriage that we know of, but so many of our friends have. People lose their children in lose their children as infants. We have friends who have had babies die suddenly. And I, I guess the the idea, I guess the approach of the early church was maybe to persuade parents to get their children baptized as soon as possible. But let's say a baby died at a week old and you had the baptism scheduled for two weeks. This theory of limbo, which it's a part of hell. And if a child dies before the age of reason, and this this whole thing, they wouldn't have they didn't have reason, so therefore they couldn't have ever opted or accepted God willingly. But we also think of innocence, right? When we think of children. I've interacted with Feeneyites, basically followers of the idea of Father Leonard Feeney, who was a 20th century priest who was excommunicated in the 
by Pius the the twelfth, I think, in the late forties or early fifties, uh, for preaching a very strict version of the teaching. There is no for the teaching. There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. And basically, unless you were a baptized Catholic who was in full communion with the Catholic Church, which I mean, the irony is he got excommunicated, so <laughs> somehow he was able to justify it. But uh, there was no hope for salvation like outside of that. And I have a friend who, or had a friend who was a, he went to our parish, but there's an, there's a Sede Vacantist group up in New York that not only are they Sede Vacantist, but they have melded their theology with Venism. So they believe that not only is the Pope not real and the church isn't the church, but you're absolutely going to hell unless you are in communion with, I don't know, the three of them that live in the trailer park up in up in upstate New York. I knew somebody who became converted, by, like somebody in real life who became converted into this view. And to me, it's just astounding. How does a merciful God damn people who, who never had the opportunity to choose salvation? And I guess they have some, there's some theories about this, like, oh, well, if God, you know, if they had, um, God would have provided an opportunity or a means for them to be baptized if they really, you know, obviously when the new world came around, for example, it's like all those generations of Native Americans had no way of learning about Jesus. So according to their logic, they were all damned. And it's, and then every Protestant is, every Orthodox Christian is, and the, the real- Practically everybody is. <clears throat> practically the everybody. three of us certainly would be. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that's interesting, though, is that the Catholic Church, just the, the easy debunking of this is that the, when groups of Eastern Christians who have been separated from the Catholic Church have come back into full communion, which has happened 40, 50 times or more over the course of the last thousand years, they bring their saints with them. And, and one, of the, uh, our, one of the latest doctors of the church, St. Gregory Narek, was a member of the Armenian church and the period during which he lived, his church actually hadn't, wasn't in full communion with, with Rome. And so I tried to look into the history of that, but there's not a whole lot about this Armenian doctor of the church. Well, one thing that's interesting is there are a few uh, eparchies of, of the Armenian church that are around the world. And the one that's based in Buenos Aires is named after St. Gregory Narek. But it, of course, it was started by John Paul II in 1997. So they would just say, oh, it's a post-conciliar thing. But my understanding is that in a lot of cases, they just bring their saints with them, and the church has never had an issue with it, has never said that they're damned. But it, it's not just that kind of technicality. It's people who don't realize that they're people who live in tough situations, who are objectively in situations of sin. Um, but very, I mean, we, Amoris Laetitia, I think, was, was trying to approach this with as much mercy as possible while staying within the bounds of what the church teaches. But I think that whole idea of somebody's in this tough situation, like one situation, I have a friend who was an RCIA director and a man who had been married before had been married for 25 years, 
decided he wanted to become Catholic. And so he goes to the RCIA class. His wife was also in her second marriage. Now, he was willing to go through the annulment process and get that regularized and to come into the church. Now, his wife, it was a brief marriage, but she wasn't a huge, she was okay with him becoming Catholic, but she wasn't going to go through an annulment process to enable him to become Catholic, if that makes any sense. And so he's between this rock and a hard place. She is either, she was in what, although there are no slam dunk annulments and any canon lawyer will tell you all that, but sounded like it was a very brief young marriage that didn't last. Probably not valid in the Catholic church's eyes, but unless she's willing to fill out the paperwork, there's nothing he can do. And he basically said, I'm willing to go through this process myself, but I can't force my wife to do this. To me, that's a situation that speaks directly to Amoris Laetitia. But the Pope Francis critics would look at that situation and say, the man has two options. He can live as brother and sister, or he can separate, or tough beans. And to me, it's just, like, why? But there's a precedent for this, right? I mean, we talk about pastoral accompaniment now. We talk about reforms of Vatican II. And maybe you guys, you eggheads with your PhDs and your knowledge of history, what was it that led? I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm fantasizing about what the preconciliar church was too, but I'm I'm thinking like, the church in the 1700s, you read some really strict decrees that are really condemnatory. And this is a mentality that seemed to be at the upper echelons of the church. Now, the church has moved beyond that, but it, it I don't know, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around why this mentality is so pervasive in the church, and it seems to have historical precedent. And there's resistance to reforming away from that approach. What you said about the, the Feniites, I guess you'd call them, it, it relates to actually what maybe what Adam talks about in his series of articles there on Dave Verbum about how, and this was more in the context of scripture, how propositions can't be taken absolutely literally. They have a sort of inner meaning that gets fleshed out over time. So if you take, and, and again, this applies to teachings of the church as well. So something like, there's no salvation outside the Catholic church, as a proposition, it sounds like a very straightforward thing if you read it literally, but we don't read it literally. We actually, because it, it depends on how you define church and depends on what you mean by being outside the church. So the problem is that language is, is inherently unstable. So we have to have the you know, theologians, we have to have the magisterium to interpret this and to give it that sort of nuance. And I think that's what's um, lacking with a lot of these people who have this incredibly strict view. There's a, a real literalism. And I would say it's a kind of fundamentalism. And it's very similar to the, the sort of biblical fundamentalism that you get in Protestantism, where every line in the Old Testament should be read, uh, or like in Genesis, should be read as completely literal, 
we don't read it that way necessarily. And I think the same applies to the teachings of the church. It's just the nature of language. No matter how forceful you state something, forcefully you state something, there's always going to be layers of meaning that can be drawn from it. And luckily, we do have the magisterium that's able to offer that sort of interpretation. But that's, a, I think, a level of thinking that it's not that maybe it's not that the, these people can't think that way. It's just that they refuse to because they want a set of teachings that's absolutely unchanging, that they can just say, this applies all places, all times, always has, always will. And I really don't think that Catholic teaching, as comprehensive and as majestic as it is, I think it is still something alive. It's always developing and growing and new layers of nuance are always being added to it. And I think Amoris Laetitia is just one example of a kind of nuance being added to it that it just adds a little room for God's mercy and frees us a little bit from an overly sort of legalistic approach to our faith. The key word I would use is fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is a kind of diseased mentality that afflicts all religions, as far as I know. Maybe some religions are immune, but you see it in Islam, you see it in Protestantism, you see it in Catholicism, and probably in other religions too, where you are taking everything literally, I guess, and you are making everything black and white, and you are reducing everything to just rules and propositions, all of which admit no exceptions. And anything outside your neat system, which is not from God, but your own creation, is rejected. And it's a closed loop, which is why it's so hard for people who have been victimized by it to escape from it, unfortunately. God's grace can poke through, and so people thankfully do (laughs) escape from it all the time. This concludes part one of my conversation with David Lafferty and Adam Rasmussen. Please join us in the coming days for part two when we discuss Catholic fundamentalism and Catholic internet trolls. As always, I would like to thank our Patreon supporters for their generosity. If you enjoyed this program, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor by clicking on one of our Patreon links. Until next time, on behalf of Dave and Adam, God bless and take care.